Nehemiah chapter 11. Lord willing, we're going to finish Nehemiah this evening. I know I've said that before. Nehemiah chapter 11, we're at the point in, in Israel's history, um, roughly, give or take a few year or two here, we're roughly 100 years or so past the point where the decree was given back at the beginning of the book of Ezra. The children of, of the southern tribes of Judah been captive for 70 years. The decree given to a certain group to come back that included Zerubbabel and, and Joshua, who was the priest at the time, to come back, and their, their task was to, they, they came back to rebuild the temple, and a, a, a contingent came back with them. And if you'll remember, they, they went through some, some difficulties, a stoppage of work and restarting that, but eventually the temple was completed. And then there's that, that gap in, in the book of Ezra where the book of Esther takes place, and Lord willing, and should he tarry, we'll get into the book of Esther next week. But that's where that fits chronologically in that. And then, then the, the last part of the book of Ezra the priest Ezra comes onto the scene, and we saw the, the spiritual time, you know, awakening that takes place. And then we get into Nehemiah, and Nehemiah comes to rebuild the wall. Well, now the wall has been rebuilt, and we've, we've spoken of that. The wall is done. The, there was a time of revival that, was ta that had taken place. The people had called for Ezra to come out then and to, to bring the word of God out and to read it aloud to the people. We saw a time of, of great revival that takes place in the children of Israel now in Jerusalem. Now that the temple is completed, the wall is done. Some time of consecrating and setting themselves apart. And we looked last week at, in, in chapter 10 where after that all had taken place, they made some commitments, recommitments, if you would, as a people to the Lord, that we will obey your commands. We will follow what it is that you said for us to do. We will separate ourselves from the world and not be involved with them as far as intermarrying with them and, and that type of thing. Obviously, just like us as Christians, we need to be, be in the world, but not of the world. We've talked of that before, that, that when it comes to interacting with the world, we are not to be in fellowship with the world. The, the world is our mission field. And so that is the, the differentiating there. So they were say, saying, we're gonna separate ourselves. We are gonna come out from them as God has called us to, not intermarry with them. We're gonna, we're gonna support the, the work of the, of the Lord. We're gonna support the, the temple work and, and, and those types of things, making those commitments. And we looked at that last time in this time of revival. And that brings us now to, to chapter 11, the, the physical wall rebuilt, the spiritual revival taking place. But now as we see, so a very practical thing needs to happen because few people were living in Jerusalem. The temple's done, the wall's built, but all the, over the past hundred years, a lot of people had come, but they had settled in the cities and the towns around. They would come in and they would work in the city and then go back and work on the wall and then go back to their homes. So there were a few people living in the city, but not, not enough. The city needs to be repopulated. So we see in chapter 11, now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of 10 to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. And you might think, well, who wouldn't want to live in Jerusalem? I mean, anybody, anybody been to Israel? 
a few, a few of you. Um, it, go to Jerusalem. When you're in Jerusalem, it is an amazing place. You get into the old city and you walk around and it's like, wow. I mean, you're like, who wouldn't want to live in Jerusalem? We'll turn back to chapter 7 real quickly. Verse, verse 4 tells us why a whole lot of people weren't living there. Now, the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not built. There wasn't, the houses, remember back when Nebuchadnezzar came into town the third time, came into Israel again. The first couple of times he just took captives away but left people there, but the, the people that were left kept on rebelling. Nebuchadnezzar finally came in and says, all right, enough of you guys. Takes them all out to captivity and totally levels the city, the walls, the temple, all of the houses. So it's just in, it's a wreck. So no, no wonder people aren't living in the city. All the houses are destroyed. So there's, they're seeing here, okay, one out of 10, they, they cast lots for that, one out of 10, and a certain number of them volunteered to go live in Jerusalem. That took great sacrifice. Imagine if your, your father, your father's father, came back with that first initial group with Zerubbabel. They started and they got their home built and, and the, the field going and the farm going and all that kind of stuff, and it had been handed down to you now a couple of generations later outside of the city, and yet here goes this call out to extend the, the work of God and to bless even future generations to go and, and pull up roots, go in and plant and be a part of a new work inside of Jerusalem, inside of the walls of the city. That There's a great sacrifice involved in that. But bottom line, God was calling people to do that. And in response, we see that many of them did. 10% of the people relocated. 10% just picked up stakes and moved into Jerusalem. Now, we don't cast lots anymore. That was a way to seek God's will. We now, as Christians, have the Holy Spirit residing in us. But let's just, let's just say right now, amongst us tonight, we're seeking the Lord together, and the Holy Spirit lays on our hearts, 10% of us, that we are going to pull up stakes and relocate to, God, to do God's work in another area. The Lord lays it on our hearts, 10% of us, that we're gonna go up and we're gonna go plant a church somewhere else where there isn't a church right now. Kind of to bring it up. And I know right now all of us would be saying, yeah, I'd be down with that. <laughs> Unless it was really happening. <laughs> and there it takes just great faith. And I just, that, that's, this just kind of amazes me, this part of the story. But, as, as we kind of tie things together and we wind this down in Nehemiah, that's one of the things that just totally blesses me about Nehemiah and the people that are here. They were willing to do what God called them to do when they were under the conviction of the Lord. We know they wander away, and unfortunately there is a chapter 13 in Nehemiah that we're gonna get to, but the, 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 the thing with this is that they responded to that. And know that when God guides, God provides. That's our, that's our biggest fear, right? And something like that. Well, if God called me to go to Wickenburg to plant a church, is God going to provide for me there? I mean, everything, I have everything I need right here. Everything's good right here. But if he calls me there, that's, that's our fear. But we should never fear that. Because where God guides, God provides. I love this story in, with Elijah where after he was obedient and, and went into the king and, the, and told the king, it's not going to rain again until I say it's going to rain, God said, you go to the brook Cherith, and I've commanded the ravens to provide for you there. <laughs> but he had to be there to get the provision. If he would have said, you know what, the brook Cherith is out in the middle of nowhere, I think I'm going to go stay with, you know, 
Uncle whoever, Uncle Mo up, up over there, you know, he's, I can hide out over there. God's sending the provision where he sent him. And we need to be obedient and following after where God sends us. And, and he will provide for us there. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean relocation. I'm saying in whatever God lays on your heart to do, whether it's ministry, whether, whether it's a job issue, whatever it is, you need to trust the Lord, seeking him in prayer. As the Lord is leading, he will provide and guide. Well, we see here as we move on, verse three, now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah, each lived in his own property in the cities. Not all were called, only 10% of them. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, the descendants of Solomon's servants, some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. And then for the next several verses, as we move, as we move through these next couple of uh, uh, chapters here pretty quickly, it outlines many names and numbers as to how many from different tribes and different um, families moved in. About 3,000 of them moved in to the city that covers down to verse 19. Uh, God sees, God knows, God records. As I've said before, I, I, I don't expect any of you to read through this list in chapters 11 and 12. I encourage you to, but I don't expect you to because that's just not like, but I can tell you if your name was in here, you'd be reading it. <laughs> and if, or if somebody you knew's name was in here, you'd be wanting to find it in there and circle it and highlight it. And I just think it's so cool. God keeps these records. God, God keeps very detailed records. In verse 20, the rest of Israel, the priests, the Levites were in all the cities of Judah, each to his own inheritance. So they're spread out around the area. Just one thing to note, um, uh, verse 23, based on the commandment from the king. Now, I've read a couple of different people disagreeing. Some believe that's King Artaxerxes because in the next verse it talks about somebody who reports to the king, that being the king of Artaxerxes. Others believe it was King David. But bottom line, he's speaking about those who are the singers, verse 22, in, that, in the service of the house of God, that they would, they would be singing, praising, leading worship continually concerning them and a firm regulation of the song leaders day by day. Leading worship, continually singing, continually praising God, that that is going on all the time. And I think that's awesome. I, there's, they didn't have iTunes back then, so it was live worship or nothing. So they got it going on live all the time. Let's see, we could, as we move on down, it, it says they, they encamped, verse 30, they encamped from Beersheba as far as the Valley of Hinnom. So uh, that's about 30 miles. It covers a wide area that they're talking about with all of this. So uh, you can read through that in chapter 11. Chapter 12 begins basically the same way. He says, now these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, again, talking through the different lists. There's several lists in Ezra and Nehemiah. But let's, uh, let's move down. Verse 27, chapter 12. We're getting into this dedication now of the wall. The wall is built, the people have consecrated themselves, the priests leading in all of these things. Now they're gonna dedicate the wall. And there is great, great praise, great thanksgiving that is going on. As a matter of fact, in this chapter, singing is mentioned eight times, thanksgiving six times, rejoicing seven times, and instruments three times. I mean, this is, this is a worship service that is going on, dedicating the wall, and again, praising the God who called and allowed the rebuilding of the wall, and again, the significance of this in Jerusalem. So verse 27, 
Now the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites from their places to bring them to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. So the sons of the singers were assembled from the district around Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netaphathites, from Beth Gilgal and from the fields of Geba and Azvamatha, for the singers had built themselves villages around Jerusalem. So again, the singers, they, they're in all of the areas, they are all gathering together at Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites purified themselves. They also purified the people and the gates in the wall, preparing themselves for this great outpouring of, of praise and worship. Then I, Nehemiah, had the leaders of Judah come to the top of the wall, and I appointed two great choirs, the first proceeding to the right on the top of the wall toward the refuse gate. Hosiah and half the team and the leaders of Judah followed them, Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaniah, Jeremiah, and some of the sons of the priests with trumpets, and Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, the son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Milkiah, the son of Zakur, the son of Asaph, in case you were wondering which one, and his kinsmen, and another list of names there, the musical instruments of David and the men of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went directly up the steps to the city of David by the stairway of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. The second choir proceeded to the left while I followed them with the half of the people on the wall from the tower of the furnaces to the broad wall and above the gate of Ephraim by the old gate, the fish gate, the tower of Hanal, the tower of a hundred as far as the sheep gate and they stopped at the gate of the guard. Then the two choirs took their stand in the house of God, and so did I, and half of the officials with me, the priests, Elkiah, Mishaiah, and others, with trumpets. And Mishaiah, again, all of these guys, and the singers sang, and, and Jezariah, their leader. So, here we go. If you'll remember, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we put up the, the picture of the wall, and we kind of went around when we did that whole thing. If not, you can Google this, and you can see the, the, the setup of it. But bottom line, what is happening is... They take all of the people led by these two massive choirs. They go up the steps by, at this first gate by the city of David, and then they split. And half the team goes around one way, and half the team goes around the other way, filling up this wall all the way around on both sides. Now, that is, that's it. just imagine the sight. All of these people getting up on this wall and walking all the way around. One thing, if you'll remember, back, back at the beginning, Tobiah, remember Tobiah, one of the things that he said, look at them building the wall. If a fox ran on it, it'd fall down. Remember that, you know, mocking that went on early on? That's just kind of a thumb in the nose at Tobiah because there's two massive choirs that are going around singing God's praises as they encircle the city of Jerusalem around the top. Can you just imagine? Can you just imagine that going on? One side going, we love Yahweh, yes we do, we love Yahweh, how about you? And then the other side yelling it back, you know, maybe not, but that's just kind of how I'm picturing it. And just this going on, this worship and praise to God as the, as the, the teams of, led by the worship leaders, but all of the people crying out and singing God's praises because he alone is worthy. Verse 30, 43, and on the day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced because God had given them great joy. 
their hearts just filled with joy. And again, it's not just the worship leaders. Again, the whole congregation, even the women and children rejoiced so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard from afar. I love that. I think that is so cool. Again, hearts just filled with joy, hearts filled with worship and praise, and it's heard from afar. I can only imagine that as these voices and the trumpets and the music going, the just boldly singing out and how that just echoed across the valley. How that must have been such a sweet sound in the, in the ears of the Lord. I have to say this, just, it happened again just now this weekend. I was commenting on that earlier um, uh, when, when, when Andy was leading that one particular song and stepped away from the microphone and you guys kept singing. That is such an amazing, it's, it's, it's so awesome to just be a part of, of congregation worship. We're not just sitting back watching. This isn't an entertainment thing. We're watching a worship team. We are, we are worshiping the Lord together. And to hear that, and the, it's heard from afar. The enemies hear it and take notice. And again, the, as they worship their Lord with great joy. And that is what's heard. It's not the notes. It's not even the words so much that, is, that reverberates. It's the joy. It's the thanksgiving. Well, verse 44, on that day, men were also appointed from over the chambers of the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather them uh, gather into them from the fields, the cities, the portions required by law for the priests, the Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. They, they, they were required by law to bring it, but notice, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. They desired to be a part, to give to the work of the ministry. Yes, it was required by law, but it wasn't, that's not why they were doing it. They were doing it because they just, they desired to, because of God, the work that God was doing, and they wanted to be a part of it and to bless them. For they performed the worship of their God in the service of purification together with the singers and the gatekeepers in accordance with the command of David and the son of Solomon. For in the days of David and Asaph in the ancient times, there were leaders and singers, songs of praise and hymns of thanksgiving to God. So all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, from the time that they first got there to Nehemiah, gave the portions to the singers, the gatekeepers, as each day required, and set apart the consecrated portion for the Levites, and the Levites set apart the consecrated portions for the sons of Aaron. Okay, so that wall is dedicated Praise be to God. Remember, again, the consecration, the things that they set themselves apart to do in chapter 10. Like I said, I wish <laughs> that Nehemiah ended at chapter 12, but it doesn't. Nehemiah, when he first comes, he's, his first stint, if you would, as leader, governor, it runs for about 12 years. We're going to see, and I've got to set this up a little bit because of the way that chapter 13 starts off um, Actually, if you look at verse six, it says, but during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. After some time, however, I asked leave from the king. So sometime after chapter 12, we're at the 12-year point from when Nehemiah got there, and he goes back to King Artaxerxes. Remember, he was his his wine taster, he was a very close confidant with the king. And if you'll remember, when he, asked, when he asked to go the first time, king said, how long are you gonna be gone? Well, we find out he was gone for 12 years. 
He asks after a time back with the king to be able to come back to Jerusalem to see, to see how things are going, to check in on things. Now, we do, we're not told anywhere in here how long that was. The estimates that I, I saw today when I was reading it through this, trying to get an answer to that, there's 10 to 12 years, but that's just a guess. But we know it's somewhat of an extended period of time. And he comes back. And that's what on chapter 13, as it starts out, on that day, they read aloud. That day, we're going to get to that point in just a little bit after he comes back to seeing all that he sees. On that day, they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And there was found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the cursing into a blessing. So when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. What had happened in the time that Nehemiah was gone is that the children of Israel started welcoming in these foreigners, these Ammonites and these Moabites into the assembly of God. Just saying, hey, just come on in, just join us. Nehemiah would have never allowed that. Remember before, there were a couple of times when their enemies came and said, hey, we'll be a part with what you're doing. We'll, we'll come alongside. And he said, no, no. They, when Nehemiah leaves, they allow that to happen. Ammonites, the Moabites, their history goes all the way back. They are distantly related to the Israelites. The Ammonites and the Moabites were, were descendants from the sons of the incestuous relationship that Lot had with his daughters. After Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, Lot's wife turned around, turned into a pillar of salt. Lot and his daughters escaped to these caves. His daughters thought that the whole world had been annihilated and that their father was the only man left. And if they were going to repopulate the earth, they would have to have relationships with, relationship with their father. So they get him drunk, have relations with him. They both get pregnant. And that's where the sons come that would be the descendants, the Ammonites and the Moabites. They are enemies of the Jewish people. They have never been friends with them. They have always been enemies. As a matter of fact, it outlines for us the two things they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water when Moses was coming across with the children of Israel to bring out bread and water to them. As a matter of fact, they came against them, even to the point where they hired this man Balaam against them to bring a curse. Now that's in recorded for us in Numbers 22 through 24. Uh, if you want to jot that down and read the story for yourself, the king Balak goes to Balaam and says, hey, come and speak a curse over the Israelites. They knew that he was a man who heard from God, so you speak a curse over them. And he said, I can't. They said, oh, we'll give you a lot of money. He says, okay, I'll try. And that's where Balaam meets the talking, his talking donkey and the whole thing. It's quite a story. Read it. But bottom line, every time he opened his mouth to speak a curse, he spoke a blessing over them instead. <laughs> God put a blessing in his mouth. And so the king gets really upset. And, and, uh, get, and we don't find out in numbers. We actually find out in the book of Revelation that Balaam said, you know what? Me speaking a curse over them isn't gonna work. It's only gonna keep blessing, but here's what you do. Just, just invite them to your feasts. Just invite them to your stuff. Get them to come alongside and they'll fall themselves. They'll stumble right into idolatry. They'll stumble right in. And that's what we actually see in Numbers chapter 25 is exactly what happened. 
We don't get the dialogue that that took place. Jesus fills us in on that in, in Revelation chapter two. Bottom line is, Balaam said, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. Invite them to come on in. Invite them to be a part of that. And that's what takes place. Here we see that on the other side. They're just like, hey, just come on in. No problem. We'll, we'll, we'll stay firm to our convictions. We'll just, we'll just let them come on in. And bottom line is, that's not, that's, that's not what took place. You know, and we see that, don't we? I mean, the leader goes away, and he's only gone for a little while, and things start coming off, off the rails. We saw that. We talked about it this weekend, right, with Moses. He's up on Mount Sinai, gone for a little bit. All of a sudden, golden calf goes to Aaron, the whole thing. Paul knew that that was always a danger in Acts chapter 20. He knew that he was, he was not going to be coming back by the way of Ephesus again, so he gathers the leaders of Ephesus together, and he tells them, be on guard for yourself and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a, a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Wolves are going to come in. And see, that's the problem, is we think that we can somehow tame the wolves. That if we, if we embrace the world, and so much of the church has done this, we'll embrace the world inside of the church culture, and we'll, we'll tame, tame the world as we bring it in. The problem is, that's not what happens. You take a German shepherd, and you put him amongst a pack of wolves, let him run for a while, are the wolves going to get domesticated? Or is the German shepherd going to get wild? And that's the problem. And that's what happens here. There is no room for compromise. And Nehemiah knew that. And when he was around, there was no compromise given. Remember, again, a couple of times, hey, can we join you? No. No, you have nothing. You have no part of this. Because look what happens. Verse 4, now prior to this, Eliashib, the priest, Mentioned back in chapter 3, he's the first one mentioned, as a matter of fact, in chapter 3, verse 1, remember when it gave the list of all of those that are working on the wall? Eliashib, the high priest, arose with his brothers to build and to consecrate the doors. And that the first one mentioned back in chapter 3, the, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him for, where formerly they put the grain offerings, frankincense, utensils, tithes of grain, wine and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Tobiah. Yes, that Tobiah. <laughs> the Ammonite. The one that we just talked about. The one who says, yeah, the, the fox is going to run on that wall. It will fall down. One of the enemies. And not only. I mean... It's, it's almost hard to believe that this could possibly happen. But look at verse 5. Not just welcoming him, welcoming him in, welcoming him into the temple and giving him one of the rooms that was dedicated for the holy sanctified things of God and saying, hey, just move in here. Bring all your stuff. Move in right here into the temple, giving him a place to live. That's where verse 6, but during that time I was not in Jerusalem, 
For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king after some time, however, I was asked to leave to the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and I learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. I love that in verse seven, when I learned about the evil, calling it what it is, not sugarcoating it. He doesn't say, you know, when I had learned about this error in judgment, this poor choice, no, it's evil. It is absolutely evil to take something that is dedicated to God and giving it to the world. That's, there's no other way, there's no other way around it. He calls it what it is. This room was dedicated, was supposed to be filled with the things dedicated to the Lord. Instead, it wasn't even, it wasn't even saying, okay, this room is kind of empty. We'll let one of the priests live here. No, we're going to let Tobiah, enemy, live here. It was very displeasing to me. That's the right internal reaction when we see something evil, when we see something like that happening. So I threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. (laughs) That's the right external response. (laughs) The internal reaction is to be totally disgusted with it. And the external response, (laughs) taking care of the problem. Can you just imagine the scene? opening the door and throwing out, you know, everything. He's not worried about the large screen TV. It's out. I mean, it's just everything's getting thrown out. He just, none of this belongs in here. All of the articles thrown out, and I would imagine not just out in the hallway, but outside of the temple, outside of, it, you know, down in probably the, the, the valley down below. Tobiah comes home. <laughs> All of his stuff's out on the yard. Then I gave an order, and they cleansed the rooms And I returned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. Turning it back to what it should be. Cleanse the rooms. Guys, there's there's a huge lesson to be learned here that we could look at from a personal standpoint because where does the Bible tell us now the temple of God is? It's right here, right? We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And there is no room, no room, no chamber in the temple of the Holy Spirit that is to be given over to the enemy. Our entire lives, our entire being is to be dedicated to the things of God. And there is absolutely no room, no, no corner, no time period, And we can so easily compartmentalize our lives and say, okay, this 80%, as long as I'm over 80%, I'm good. No, we are called the temple of the Lord. All of us. And and nothing, anything that is in our lives that is not pleasing to God, that we can't say that is fully dedicated to the Lord. Guys, it's evil. I'm going to call it what it is. It's not, a, it's not an error in judgment. It's wrong. And it needs to be dealt with. And because you have the Holy Spirit in you, the Holy Spirit will reveal that to you. And the right internal reaction is to be disgusted by it. 
The right external reaction is to completely do away with it, throw it out, and then <laughs> cleanse it. Notice verse 10, I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. That was part of the problem. The, the giving, the, the, the response that had filled the rooms to begin with had stopped. So much so that the Levites and the singers had to go back to their old houses, go back to their old occupations in order to provide for themselves. So there was probably an empty room or two. A vacancy will be filled by the enemy. He'll make sure of that. That's why it's so important that, that, we, that we make sure every part of our lives, everything is filled with dedicated to the Lord. You know, there's that, uh, we were talking about this the other night when we were together, and some of you, if you've taken those different marriage classes, been part of Marriage Mondays, one of the things that is, that is humorous but extremely true, one of the differences between men and women is that men, they talk about the boxes. And men have a nothing box. And women don't understand that. And that's why women, when you ask us a question at times, what are you, what are you thinking about? And we say nothing. That's true. Because <laughs> we do have that space, that nothing box, where we can just sit there and kind of actually be thinking about absolutely nothing. And you don't get that because that's impossible for you because you always got something going on. And that's just God made us differently that way. And, but that being said, there is no box that can be left empty because the enemy will fill that. Everything in our lives needs to be set aside, consecrated, dedicated to the Lord. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together, restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain and the, oil, the wine and the oil into the storehouses. So reprimanded the officials, said, why is this done this way? Set things back up the way they were before. And it said, all of Judah then responded, brought their tithes, brought what they were supposed to be doing. Possibly, too, because they could trust again. I wonder how many were wondering, what, what is, what's Tobiah doing in the temple? What is going on here? This is, Nehemiah would have never allowed this to go on. And things going back. But now that proper leadership is restored, people probably thinking, okay, we can trust what's going on here. In charge of the storehouses, verse 13, I appointed Shemaliah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites. And in addition to them, Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. I like this in verse 13. It, it outlines four, four men. And the thing that I think is kind of cool in this is three of them are titles, have titles. One's a priest, one's a scribe, one's a Levite. But the fourth one, no title. But all serving the Lord in this capacity. And guys, there's a great lesson in that. There's, it's not about titles. It's not be, about being recognized with a certain position or title or whatever. It's about being faithful. Because that's what it says here. They were considered reliable. And so here's, here's this priest, the scribe, this Levite, and then here's this layperson, if you would, 
that was trusted with it, not because he had elevated himself in any type of title or worked his way up in any type of way, but he was reliable. He was trustworthy. And he was seen for that and placed in control or to oversee this with the same ones with, as, as the rest of them. Verse 14, we see a couple of these prayers throughout. A couple we'll see in, in chapter 13 of Nehemiah. He says, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and for its services. He's not concerned about what anybody else thinks. He's only concerned about the things of God, the things that, that please God. He's concerned about what goes on in the temple. We don't, we don't worship the building. We worship the God of the building, right? And that can be the same, same as said for the, this physical building that is, that is Calvary Chapel Surprise. But again, the same as with, with the temple. We don't worship the temple. We don't worship the building. We worship the God of the building. But understand that God deeply cares about what goes on inside the building, and Jesus was passionate about that. We saw that as he cleansed the temple twice in his ministry, two recorded times where he cleansed the temple because he was passionate about the things of God, the things that go on in the temple. And so was Nehemiah. And that was his, that was his prayer. Lord, remember me for this. We're gonna get, we'll see this again as, as we move through. Um, we move through this. But what a great prayer to be able to pray. Lord, remember me for for, for this, to be passionate about that. Well, also, verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah, some were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also men of Tyre were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Remember, back in chapter 10, that was one of the things they promised. We're not gonna do. We're gonna set aside the Sabbath day. We're gonna honor that. We're gonna remember that. Here we have, just a few years later, Nehemiah leaves, business as usual. Back open on, on the Sabbath, trading going on. Then I reprimanded the nobles, verse 17 of Judah, and said to them, what is this, note again, this evil thing you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? That word profaning is an, it has an interesting meaning. It means treating something that is holy as though it were common, as though it were just like anything else. And that's what he is saying here. This evil thing, this Sabbath day, which by the way, we'll get to this, just say, the Sabbath day was between God and the Jews. Why are you treating this holy thing? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That's the fourth commandment. Why are you treating this day like every other day? This thing that is supposed to be considered holy, you're treating it as common. So he says, I reprimanded them for this evil thing. Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on this city all this trouble. Remember, that's one of the main reasons, as it was told. God said, I'm going to take my Sabbaths that you didn't give the land. That's why they were gone for 70 years. Yet you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. It came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut 
and that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. The Sabbath started as soon as, on Friday night, as soon as the priest could see three stars in the sky. That was what constituted the fact that, okay, Sabbath has officially begun, Friday night. And it ended Saturday night as soon as the priest could see three stars in the sky. That's how the Sabbath was run. So as, as it's getting dark, as it's getting to that time, Nehemiah says, we're closing the gates, we're shutting the doors, then I stationed some of my servants on the gates so that no load would enter on the Sabbath day, watching all the gates. Once or twice, twice, the traders and merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. So they'd leave, right, you know, when they were getting kicked out, and they'd just hang out right outside, thinking, okay, you're gonna close this out, shut the gates on us, we'll just hang out out here. People can come out and buy from us. Then I warned them and said, why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. <laughs> From that time, they did not come on the Sabbath. Willing again to take a stand for the things of God. I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. So again, setting aside the Sabbath day. Now, as Christians... Again, the Sabbath was between God and the Jewish people, specifically said that several times in the Old Testament. The Sabbath, we, that, that's addressed with us. Paul addresses that in the book of Colossians for us as Christians in chapter two. He says, no one is to act as your judge with regard to food or drink in respect to festival, new moon, or Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. All of the Jewish sacrificial system, all of the festivals, even the Sabbath day itself, all pointed to Jesus. He said it's all a mere shadow. The substance is Christ, fulfilled when Christ became our Sabbath rest. We have rest in him. The work is done on the cross. It all pointed to him. It all pointed to the, fact, the work that he did for us on the cross. And he said it is finished Bible tells us again after that in Hebrews, he then took his seat at the right hand of God. He sat down because the work is done and we have our Sabbath rest in him because he did it all for us. So what, is, what does the fourth commandment have to do with us as Christians? How do we look at that? Well, again, every day is a Sabbath day for us again, right? We should view every day that way because, again, the work is completed for us. And we have our rest, our eternal rest in Christ. We should never lose sight of it. There should never be a day, ever be a day as Christians that we don't rejoice and praise God for that fact, that we have our rest in him. But bottom line, God created us in a way that we need rest. The Sabbath, Jesus said that. The Sabbath is for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath God gave to us. We need that. We're just like any, anything else. We run, it, we run ourselves too hard, we're gonna, we're gonna wear out. We need rest. And we should honor God in our lives as Christians with a day that is set aside to remember him. Now, some of us have to work on Sundays. There's no, there's no legalistic thing about what day it is, and by the way, there's no legalistic thing about taking a day and setting it aside either, but we should. 
We should take that time to set aside that time. We should, as Christians, every day set aside time to be with the Lord. But setting aside a day that is not, that's different from the rest, that, that, that's working. And by the way, work is not a negative thing. It tells us back, back in the Garden of Eden, Adam was put to work before the fall. <laughs> work wasn't a result of the curse. Work, work, was, work is a gift. God gives us the ability to work. God gives us the honor to work alongside him for ministry. But we need to take, we need to take that time to rest. It's not a legalistic thing. I, th- I think it's great that there's still some businesses that honor the Lord, big name businesses. I, there's a commercial that's out. At, um, there's a car dealership in town. It says, oh, we're always closed on Sundays because Sundays are about football, family, and faith. And I like that. I think that's, that's cool. They're making a stand. They're proclaiming it. Chick-fil-A closed on Sunday. Hobby Lobby closed on Sunday. Uh, you know, is it a sin to be open on Sunday? No. But they choose to honor God with that, and God blesses that. Anyway, profaning, taking something that is holy and making it common. We need to be careful of that again in anything in our lives, anything that should be sanctified, set apart for God, treating it as, as common. And that's what they were doing here. Notice again his, his prayer at the end of verse 22, for this also remember me, O my God, and have compassion on me. Notice though, according to the greatness of your loving kindness. He is not saying, Lord, pay me back for all the good I'm doing. <laughs> He recognizes that it is by God's grace and mercy. It's not merited. He's saying, remember this and have compassion on me according to the greatness of your loving kindness. Verse 23, in those days, I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Again, chapter 10. Remember, we're not gonna do that. Here we are just a few years later. Ashdod, Philistines. Ammon, Moab, as we already mentioned, idol worshiping. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. And again, we talk about this often, just mention it again real quickly. The Bible is clear that as Christians, we are not to be yoked together with unbelievers in, in anything, but specifically with regards to here when it comes to a marital relationship. A Christian should not marry an unbeliever. And number one, because God said so, but number two, again, the, the, the problem arises continually throughout the rest of that relationship. There are occasions, yes, where the unbelieving spouse becomes a believer, but that is never an okay to go ahead and say, well, I, God told me so because I, he's good. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He said very clearly in his word, don't do it. You stop the relationship now until they get saved. Then get married, praise the Lord. That's awesome. But the problem comes, and he outlines it right here. What happens then when you have children? And the children are raised up. And there's two different languages being spoken in the home. There's two different worldviews that are going on in the home. And the, the children are gonna gravitate to, to one or the other. And here we see that here. They, didn't, they weren't even learning Hebrew. They weren't even learning the language that the, 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 the Old Testament is written in. They, weren't, they couldn't read the word of God because they weren't even being taught the language. So I contended with them. Notice how he handles this, verse 25. 
I contended with them. I got right in their face. I cursed them. I struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters and sons nor take their daughters for your sons for yourselves. Versus modern day counseling. (laughs) I got right in their face. I struck some of them. I pulled out their hair. Remember, if remember back in Ezra, he probably talked with Ezra beforehand, and Ezra said, yeah, they were doing the same thing back when, when I first got here. And I was so grieved by it. I tore my clothes, and it tells us Ezra pulled out his own beard. That didn't work, so Nehemiah said, I'll pull theirs out. <laughs> and made them swear. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Again, giving this example, Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, the one who at one time early on in his life was so devoted to the things of God, when God came to him and said, you can have anything you want. He said, I want wisdom so that I can, I can lead your people. I mean, that's the heart that Solomon had at the beginning. Yet that heart was turned against God by foreign women that he, again, ignored the command. He multiplied his wives and he multiplied foreign wives and they turned him to idols. They turned him against God, the wisest man that ever lived. What makes us think that, that we can somehow navigate that path? And that's what he's saying to them there. Do we then hear about you and you have committed all this, notice, great evil, by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women. Now, again, this is not God saying, speaking against interracial marriage. That has nothing to do with this. Praise the Lord. Because <laughs> in case most of you know, I'm, I'm married to a woman from Mexico. So praise God. I'm glad that has nothing to do with what he's talking about here. This is talking about marrying outside of the faith again. It, it's not talking about it's not a racial thing. It's not a, it's not a nationality issue. It's a spirituality issue. It's talking about being unequally yoked. Even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest. Oh, here we go. Even one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Yes, that's Sanballat, back into the beginning. The leader of the enemies had married into the family of, the, of one of the priests. So I drove him away from me. I can imagine that scene. Especially after pulling the beards out of some of the others and the stuff that's going on, this guy was probably hightailing it out of there. Just, I'm gone. Verse 29. Remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his task. And I arranged for the food supply and the wood to be appointed times for the first fruits again, reinstating everything that was going in chapter 10, 11, and 12 that had fallen away in chapter 13. Remember me, oh my God, for good. I know we're, we're out of time, but just I, Nehemiah to me, I mean, I've, I've gone through Nehemiah numerous times in my life, but I've been so blessed these last weeks going through Ezra and Nehemiah. I didn't, I, when we set out on this, I had no intention of taking this long to go through, but there's so many great practical things, and I was just 
sitting there this, this afternoon praying and just saying, Lord, make me more like Nehemiah. I want to be more like him. I mean, remember back at the beginning, it was a man who just, he heard the call of God. He was sensitive enough to hear God's voice. And then what did he do? He prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he waited on God. And I know I have such a, I'm, I can be so impatient at times, but he waited on God. But then when God said go, God said now's the time, he trusted God and he moved out and he stepped out in faith, trusting God completely all the way. And then when, then when problems came and the enemy stepped forward, he realized, remember we talked about that, that when God calls and moves and you're praying and God says that, you can expect the hand of God on your life, but you can also expect the hand of the enemy against what, what's going on. And he knew that, but it didn't dissuade him, it didn't stop him. He didn't get sucked into all of these different arguments and fights. He says, you know what, I don't have time for all of that. I, I have to stay focused on what God has called me to do. And then, and then through all of that, and, and made no compromise in his own life, and then also he wouldn't allow compromise in the, in the, in the house of God, in the, in the, in, with the people around him. He challenged them. He knew that he couldn't do the work alone. Guys, none of us can do the work alone. We all need one another. And we all have to trust each other in that. And, and, he, and he gave people authority, accountability, but he also wasn't afraid to step in and correct when things needed to be corrected. And just a, just a great man of God. So I encourage you if, this week to reread the, the chapter, and especially if you've gone through it with us and taken some notes, go back through that. I did today, and it was, it was a blessing because what a, what, a, what, a great, what a great lesson, what a great man, what a great example and praise the Lord again. We talked to this this weekend. God recorded that for us. He's preserved that for us for our instruction. We can learn a lot from Nehemiah. We can learn a lot of the things not to do by the children of Israel, by the way that they so easily got sucked back into some of their old ways. As soon as they took their focus off, even just a little bit of a compromise. Guys, again, no compartment, no part of our lives because every part of us should be set, set, set aside, sanctified, dedicated to the Lord, right? We're going to get to that in Romans 12. You know, that our lives a living sacrifice. That's our reasonable response in worship. So none of that set aside and dedicated to the Lord should be allowed to be sucked away. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you. Thank you for recording for us the story of, of some godly men, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Lord, how they, they trusted you and they listened to you and they followed you. And Lord, we want hearts like that, passionate for the things of you, the things that you desire. We want to love what you love as passionately as they did, as passionately, Jesus, as you did, that we, wouldn't, we would not tolerate anything in our lives that would, that would come in the way of that, that would compromise our walk with you, our witness of you. And Lord, if there is right now, if there's anything in our lives that is not pleasing to you, that is that we have allowed the enemy to move into, or perhaps even right now, Lord, there's some spot in our life that we're holding off as empty. <laughs> Lord, would you show that to us right now? And we, we confess that to you right now. We repent. We ask for a fresh filling of your Holy Spirit in us. Lord, that you would have your way in us individually and corporately. Lord, use Calvary Chapel Surprise 
as a place that is, that is not worshiped. Lord, it's not about the building. It's about the God of the building. It's about you. That you would have your way in us to reach the community around us. Have your way. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. God bless you guys. Have a good rest.